Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is someone very interesting, Laura Janusik, who is the CEO of a company called Listening to Change. Laura, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your background and how you got to where you are? Sure, Marcus. I was a millennial before the term was coined, which is a nice way of saying that I've had a variety of careers in my life that have led me up to today. And specifically today, I'm leveraging my 15 years in human resources management on an executive team with my 20 years as an academic, a college professor, and a scholar who has become known as worldwide expert in teaching and training listening. And I'm using all of that experience to bring it into private industry and corporate America to help individuals and teams better align their communication through the power of listening. Excellent. Okay, so I I see from your CV that you are the president of the International Listening Association. What were the principles and the reasons for that being established? The International Listening Association was established in 1979 by Manny Style, and it is a place where people who are interested in teaching, training, and researching listening gather. We gather uh, annually for a convention. We also host an academic journal that has high rigorous standards, and we're really interested in understanding listening from a multidisciplinary perspective. Okay, so tell me this. Why is it that as a species, we are so appallingly bad at listening? That's a great question, Marcus. And of course, it depends on how you're defining listening, right? One of the ways that I got into listening was totally accidental. It was my advisor's passion. And even though I had told him early on I would not become a listening person, During my final semester, I realized I should take his listening course because he would be writing my letters of recommendation. (laughs) So it was a political move. It was driven by selfish self-interest then. It totally was. And within two weeks, that class changed my life because I realized that listening is a process. Listening isn't just one thing. It's a process. And there wasn't a lot of academic research that had been done to support the process. And I realized that there was a great need in that area. And it interested me so much because listening is really the crux of all relationships, personal or professional. Trust comes through us perceiving the other person is a good listener for us. So if I could unpack some of those things that help people become a better listener, then that's what I was going to dedicate my life to doing. So you say that listening is a process, and certainly my experience is that listening is a whole body experience if you're doing it well. Again, no one pops out their mother's womb able to listen. Well, in fact, let me rephrase that, because I suspect... Most people do pop out their mother's womb able to listen well because it's one of the principal ways that we learn. Why is it we forget? Actually, I'm going to correct that because I think people pop out of the womb with the ability to hear. And the distinction between hearing and listening is that hearing is involuntary, but listening means that we are trying to process the words. And the nonverbals 
in a way that is consistent with the meaning that is coming from the speaker. Okay. Thanks for the trip to the woodshed. Uh, <laughs> so my, my, my question then is, as children, we're trying to learn and absorb and observe, and we're very fragile, we're uh, very vulnerable. And certainly, as I recall my own childhood, but more importantly, my children's early years, they paid incredible attention to the tiniest thing. And that's what I really mean by uh, it being a whole body experience. They were listening, they were watching, they were seeing how uh, the people around them responded and reacted. And what, what I'm curious about is, whilst I take your point on the hearing, why is it that as we grow older, we spend so much less time listening? And whilst we might hear, we don't really take in all those other nonverbal messages that need to be accompanied with listening. Because I think what you're describing is being a great observer and being in the moment. Is that fair? I will say that that is fair right now. That is fair. <laughs> <laughs> that is fair in the moment, but I am not going to necessarily stay there. I think that observation is really a key part to listening. I would disagree with you that people become poorer listeners as they age. I think that some people do become much better listeners as we age. And I think there are a number of ego components that really influence this. So at, so when we're younger children, I think you're right. We're doing a lot of observation and we're trying to figure out who we are and how you navigate this life and how you're supposed to be a human being. It's kind of like animals who teach their young how to be animals. So um, a dog who teaches their children how to be dogs or a cat who teaches their children how to be cats. And our parents teach us how to be humans. And listening is only one of the ways that we gain information to be human. So it's not strictly observational. As a matter of fact, this part just is one of my most, uh, my largest like mind shifts, right? It blows my mind to have learned this or actually discovered it, I think. Listening is primarily a cognitive process that takes place in our brain. So we can't see each other listen. But in communication, listening is perceived behaviorally by the other person. So you and I are having a conversation and, and we're, we have the ability to see each other. So I see you nodding and I see you establishing eye contact. And I go, oh, Marcus is listening to me. But here's the piece of information that will blow your mind. There is absolutely no research that I have been able to find in the world, in the world, that correlates what's going on with the, in the brain with any active listening behavior, what we call those active listening behaviors. So we have done, there is research that is published that suggests that women are better listeners than men. But yeah. what they're counting in those are simply the what we perceive to be listening behaviors. They have more eye contact. They have more head nods. But again, those things do not correlate to cognition or brain, what's going on in our brain and how we're making meaning. So there are a lot of challenges with listening because we don't get taught how to listen in school 
we do get taught to listen by our parents, but generally we get taught by those active listening skills. I don't know about you, but my mom would say, look at me while I'm talking to you. You know, so what she was suggesting was that eye contact means listening. And I think a lot of children grow up thinking eye contact means listening. But then when you recognize that in different cultures, there are different cultural norms, eye contact in some cultures is extremely disrespectful when you're interacting with a higher up. You know, so it doesn't mean listening. It means something very different than listening because it has no correlation to us making meaning in our brains. In that context, that's really a power play and uh, trying to capture someone's attention. And it's enforcing one's authority when that kind of thing happens. So that that misinterpretation of the meaning, um, I, I see that happen an awful lot. So tell me this, what, what is listening then? I mean, you, you've, you've given a, a broad overview, but if it's a process of cognition, then what are the processes, what are the steps involved so that we can become effective listeners? We have to first sense the information. So that information comes into us through words, sounds, and visuals. We have to process that information to make meaning of it. And in processing information, I like to go back to what's called working memory theory. And this is something that many people aren't aware of, but when it's explained, it's, it's a very easy process. And let me back up and say that it used to be that attention and memory was about sensing information it goes into your short-term memory and it goes into your long-term memory. And you've probably heard that model before. But that model actually was replaced by working memory theory because working memory theory suggests it can't be a one-way process. Once we get things into our short-term memory, we have to pull from our long-term memory to assign meaning to the words that we're listening to. And we have to pull from our long-term memory to assign meaning to what we're seeing, whether it's reading or body expressions. And then we mix those things together in our short-term memory, which is now called working memory. And some of it we can toss away and others of it then goes into our long-term memory. So we build information on what's already in our mind. Sometimes we build information and we build on to what's in our mind. And sometimes we build information and we change what's in our mind. So an example of that one is, I don't, I know this is a podcast that many people will listen to and I hesitate to use this example, but my parents told me Santa Claus was real. And And that was in my long-term memory, and I really believed that. And then in second grade, when I somehow got the messages from my siblings and other friends that Santa Claus wasn't real, and I found all of my Christmas presents wrapped in my mother's closet before Christmas, (laughs) I mean, it really... Did you go looking for them? No, I did not go looking for them. I really did not. But that blew my mind. And and then I'm left with this true-false or or myth-fact. I'm left with this, is my mother a liar or does Santa Claus really exist? And it's not until you get older that 
you then decide if you're going to buy into that lie and teach it to your children or nieces or nephews or not, or if you're going to tell them the truth from being a young child. And so that's part of listening. And we get to decide what goes into our long-term memory then. So whatever goes into our long-term memory, that's what we use to build on when we listen into the future. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying about power plays and things like that. I think some of us have those egos that don't like to be wrong. So anything that's in our long-term memory, well, by God, that is correct, right? That is what we know to be true. And nobody can tell me anything different. And so those people don't end up being great listeners because I think a key component of being a good listener is that one has to be willing to be influenced. That's really interesting because I think the flip side of that is if you're not willing to be influenced, then you enter conversation uh, with prejudice, so prejudgment. And then you judge what is being said rather than being open to the intended message. And I'm seeing this a lot. I mean, bless you. We failed the IQ test with our Brexit vote. And then you voted Trump in. Um, So you know, we both really screwed this up, didn't we? (laughs) You you lost uh, on that one. Only just though. I've come across a really interesting observation in terms of persuasion, and it can be used for good or ill, uh, which is people will do anything for those who encourage their dreams, justify their failures, allay their fears, confirm their suspicions, and help them throw rocks at their enemies. And I I look at what's happening over the pond, and Trump is a master of all of that. And what that does is it then causes people who he's affecting emotionally to shut down, either uh, pro or against. And um, if we have a, a two-word model that is guaranteed to stop people from listening, in fact, I just had a really unsatisfying sales call where someone phoned me to sell me something. And his opening gambit was effectively to correct and then try to convince me. And that doesn't work because it just causes people to shut down. And that's very critical parent and then very manipulative. So very I would see that as being the negative side of the little professor. Whereas the flip side is that you validate the other person. And that's exactly what uh, Trump is doing masterfully with his base in terms of uh, playing their dreams, failures, fears, suspicions, and uh, throwing rocks at the enemies. And once you do that, then you fascinate. And my friend Ron Voprodeis used to uh, teach that attention is a product. It's a currency you pay attention. And to be fully present and to stay out of that drama triangle, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be nurturing, empathic. But you also have to know how to draw boundaries and assert yourself. And to do that, then you can be authentic. And I think one of the greatest qualities of the best listeners I've ever known is that Whilst you may not agree with them and they may may not agree with you, you always knew that they were absolutely authentic and they were being honest with you. So your mother was a liar. But (laughs) the reality is that if you can tell the kind truth, that's incredibly potent. But in order to do that, 
you have to have real understanding and you have to have been open in the first place to hear what's being said and what the intent is. So how do you teach people to develop that honest, authentic, childlike curiosity so that they can be fully present? They're not thinking about how they can fill the silence with the sound of their own voice or their next question. How do you teach them to do that? Yeah, that's a terrific question, Marcus. And first of all, I will say we can't teach everyone to listen or we can't train everyone to listen because some individuals don't want to listen. They are... Say again? They they want to I listen. couldn't resist. Anyone who knows me knows me. That's my favorite joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't want to listen because they are afraid and they could be afraid of a number of different things. They could be afraid of being incorrect. And of course, in today's day and age, egos are a very big thing, and we hate when we're incorrect on things. They cannot want to listen because they're afraid they're going to hear information that they don't understand, and then they'll look foolish. And they are afraid to listen because they don't know how to process information and figure out what is a plausible argument and what isn't a plausible argument. You went back and you talked about influence and persuasion. And I think influence and persuasion has been really, oh, I don't even know what word to use, but messed up in the way that it is taught and that it is around the world today. It's, yes, it's been corrupted. That word. Yes, corrupted. Exactly. It has been corrupted. Because we play too much on people's emotions with incorrect facts. And we know that there's a theory that's called the rational actor theory, which is always one of my favorite theories, which suggests that human beings really make decisions spontaneously based on feelings. But because we like to position ourselves as being more rational than animals, we then develop <laughs> a reason about why we chose what we chose. We, we decide and buy emotionally and we justify intellectually. Yes. Um, certainly in my line of work, I see that all the time. So if, if people uh, decide emotionally and spontaneously, is there a way of learning how to get yourself out of your own way? I think there is. And, and some of it goes back to learning how to build arguments and learning about influence and persuasion so you don't become trapped in it. I think there's also an, another element that we haven't touched on yet, which is that recent research published in 2019 actually has shown listening to be a cognitive habit. And habit is a really important word there because habit means that we do something routinely, oftentimes without thinking about it. So how we process information and come to conclusions, we do it the same way because we've never learned how to do it in a different way. But we also, many people, not everyone though, also does a different routine in different context. So how you listen to your children is probably very different than how you listen to your clients, than how you listen to your boss when you were 25 years old. So all of those ways that we listen are, are different contexts, or maybe you didn't, Marcus, but many of us do, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, many of us do. 
But even further than that, the research has found not only that listening is a cognitive activity, but there are four primary habits that people use to process information, select and process information. And Can you talk uh, us through those? Yes, yes, I'd be happy to. The first is connective. And these are individuals who are very interested in selecting and processing the information based on how it's going to affect people. So they're listening outwardly for how this information is going to affect other people. They're also looking at other people in the room to see how they're responding to the information and keying into emotions. And they're also recognizing who's not in the room that should have access to this information before a decision is made. So these are connective listeners processing everything through people and emotions. So if someone is a strongly connective listener, by the sounds of things from what you said, would it be fair to say that what they don't necessarily do is look inward? Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, that's the opposite habit of listening, which is called reflective. And a reflective listener looks inwardly first. So this is the individual who's going, how is this information affecting me? How will this information affect my team? Do I have any past experience that I can contribute to this discussion? So this individual starts at that place. And and both of these are, are places that we start. It's not necessarily where we end up. So I don't want to paint a reflective listener as only thinking about him or herself, but that's just where they start listening from and processing the information. So we've got the connective listener, we've got the reflective listener, which are both habits, listening habits. And then the other two, which you'll see have a tension between them as well, is the analytical and the conceptual. And the analytical listener listens for the facts and the details of today. So what are the facts of today? Where did we get those facts? So the credibility of the source is very important to the analytical listener. The analytical listener needs to nail down all of those things before they can do anything else. Whereas the conceptual listener is really interested in just getting the big idea or the big picture and then applying it to the future. So what's the big idea here? And then how might I be able to use it in the future, which is like a brainstormer. And so if we listen through one of those different habits, you can see how it's quite possible to go into a meeting and come out with five different interpretations of what happened in that meeting, or at least four different interpretations of what happened in that meeting. Because people are processing the information differently in their brain. Right. Okay. And there is, uh, for those of you who are interested in learning more about your own listening styles and uh, areas that uh, you might want to uh, understand better, there is a profile by a company called Echo Listening. Laura is a practitioner using uh, that particular tool. I've taken it and actually it's depressingly accurate. Um, (laughs) And uh, as Laura was describing the uh, connective and uh, conceptual listener, I was thinking, oh yeah, that sounds awfully uh, good. Then I realized just how low my reflective and analytical uh, scores were. 
So tell me this, what, why, why should someone want to understand how they listen? I think listening first comes from the ability to listen to ourselves. And you had talked earlier, Marcus, about listening being a whole body experience. And I think we've really lost touch in recognizing how we how we experience life and how we make decisions in life because we so quickly run from one thing to another. So this is a little tangent and then I'm going to come back to that idea. But when I look at society today in the middle of the pandemic, we're on all of these Zoom meetings. And oftentimes we leave the Zoom meetings go back to back. So we have a meeting that starts at one o'clock, at two o'clock, at three o'clock. And we don't leave ourselves any time to think and process after each meeting. It's about what the next meeting is. And so we've forgotten about the last meeting that we were just at, where we could have talked about something very important that we need to make a decision on. But if I don't have the brain capacity to be able to think about it, because now I'm logging into a new Zoom meeting about a totally different topic, I need to be present for that meeting. And as Nancy Klein says in her book, the title of her book is Time to Think. We don't provide ourselves with time to think anymore, which is really important with listening because listening, though it occurs in the moment, we think about it and connect it to other things in our long-term information afterwards. And sometimes we do that consciously, like I'm doing a lot of walking during the pandemic, and I will use that time to think about different things and pull things out of my past experience because like you, I'm not a reflective listener in the in the moment, but I can go and I can reflect later on that. And I think unless we we leave ourselves time to think that we're doing ourselves a a big disservice in terms of what we do in our businesses because we aren't building better mousetraps. We're building quicker mousetraps, but a quicker mousetrap isn't necessarily a better mousetrap. It's sacrificing effectiveness for efficiency. Yes. Yes. If I've taken one thing out of today, it's that uh, in order to listen effectively, you need to give yourself time to process and connect the dots and then come up with a conclusion and part of the problem will then be if you're somebody who races from one thing to the next either you'll come to a potentially wildly wrong conclusion and misinterpret what was being said or you'll miss the meaning entirely because you haven't given yourself the time to reflect that is true and i would add on to that particularly for the people who are rushing from one meeting to another to take the time within the interaction to actually confirm that what they're processing is in actuality correct. So you could say something and I could make a very different interpretation in my mind and go, oh, well, he's just never going to be interested in this because of that, you know, what he just said. And if I don't go, Marcus, wait, are you saying that this is the kind of product or service that you would never be interested in. 
you might go, well, no, I'm not saying I would never be interested in it, but I wouldn't be interested in it now because of this, this, or that. And that's a very different takeaway than you'll never be interested in it. So because listening is primarily that cognitive activity that takes place in our brain and we can't tell what people are thinking or listening to by looking at their facial expressions, we really need to use our words to better understand what's going on in their brain. And that's why asking those types of questions and confirming information is going to be very important. Just run past me again what you mean by when you talked about the use of facial expressions, because certainly the work of... Ekman. Uh, Paul Ekman, sorry, thank you. And uh, Paul Ekman suggests that what micro-expressions will do is they'll, you'll have these micro-leakages of the truth uh, in terms of emotional truth as that person experiences it or believes it. Are you saying that's hokum or uh, that it's part of that whole body uh, listening experience? I actually did get certified in reading micro-expressions and I strongly support the research uh, that that undergirds that. But we have to really look at what microexpressions are. Microexpressions basically suggest and has been confirmed that there are seven emotions that are shown consistently on the face, regardless of culture. Yeah. And so sadness is going to be shown the same way in the United States as it is in China, as it is in Australia, as it is to people who were born blind. You know, so they've never seen sadness. Microexpressions, as you suggest, are the leakages of those emotions. So if I can read emotions, I'm not necessarily reading thoughts. I'm reading emotions. Ah, Right. And I can do something with that information. And as a matter of fact, what I do in, in training that I do with individuals Oftentimes I will introduce them to microexpressions, but I won't get them fully certified in it. I mean, certainly if they want to, that's absolutely fine. But I help them understand how they can use that information and bring it into the discussion in the moment. So for example, if I saw you make a funny face of some sort, I could go, Marcus, it looks like that struck a chord in you. What are you thinking? You know, so I know that something's going on in your brain and I don't really want to know how you feel about it, what your emotion is about it. I want to know what you're thinking about it. Right. Okay. So in the course of conversations, these emotional markers will appear. And I'm drawing on a valuable lesson that I learned from Mark Goulston in his work around listening, which is that all human beings want to be heard, to feel felt, and to be understood. And this comes full circle to what you were saying right at the outset, which is that as human beings, it's really important for us to feel like what we are saying is being valued. And so I'd like to take this uh, into management, because uh, I see so many organizations with highly disengaged employees, people who feel like they're excluded. And you know, the questions around diversity and inclusion are very current. As a manager, what are the skills that managers really need to develop very early on? And in fact, ideally before they become 
get promoted into management so that when they become a manager, they're as effective as possible from, so from a listening perspective. From a listening perspective, it really is this ability to be influenced and to listen to everyone in the company. When we are at the bottom end of the company, right, and we, we are maybe the line worker or, or the, the producing person, we oftentimes don't get a say in how things are done, but yet we're the ones on the floor who see how things could be done better. Maybe they could be done faster. Maybe they could be improved. Maybe cost could be cut. And so it's really important for managers to get the opinions and the ideas of the people who are doing the work. So learning how to do that with each other is going to be really important, as you say, before they even move into management. Once they move into management, I think one of the challenges is now they have to listen from the top down because they're listening to different things now. They're listening to the quarterly budgets and and they're listening to all of this other business stuff that they didn't have to listen to when they were just the producers. And oftentimes they just listen up and they don't listen down anymore. And they forget to listen for where they came from because they're really interested in listening to where they're going to. This opens up a whole can of worms and and I think it's something that really needs to have uh, the spotlight shone on it. You see many organizations uh, claim to listen to their staff through employee surveys, but they don't give feedback as to what they've learned and then no changes occur as a result of those employee surveys. And very often what we see is the antithesis of this. They, you know, the, the, in, in their positioning statement, they say that you know, people are their most important asset, whereas in fact they come ninth after paper clips. And one thing that I've, I'm looking for a technology out there that does this, because I think um, the whole uh, question around Highly engaged employees is vitally important if you're going to compete, especially now when there's a lot of turmoil economically, things are tough, and people are feeling very isolated, they're feeling uncertain. And I think you're absolutely right. Organizations that do not listen to people who are at the sharp end of the stick miss out. And you're starting to see these technologies appear Uh, in the business-to-consumer side of things with artificial intelligence uh, analyzing millions or billions of calls to get unfiltered, genuine, spontaneous conversation and uh, identify patterns of communication to learn from customers. But I don't see any of that happening at an employee level, which I think is a huge crashing waste um, because your staff are at the front end, they are dealing with the customers, they're putting up with your terrible processes and your crappy management. And if only you'd listen to them, they'd tell you how to do things so much better. Are you seeing any advancements in those areas? I think there are some advancements, but there are also more drawbacks. So are you suggesting uh, you're looking for a technology that measures that? Or... I think it still goes back to management by walking around. Yeah. 
And I think it's really important for the people who are in charge at the upper levels to dedicate time every week to go into the echelons of where the work is getting done and talk to the people who are actually doing the work. I'm not a huge fan of technology where it distances you from human to human relationships, but there is so much, you know, as companies grow and managers, senior managers and leaders uh, have less and less uh, access or content uh, contact with their people, then I would love to see that the technology hand in hand with walking around and speaking to uh, people and managers doing that as a matter of routine, getting more involved in coaching and really coaching where there's protection, there's potency and permission so that people can say what they believe uh, without fear of being punished. And then that being fed back up. But like you said, um, you know, that often managers are just listening to what's coming top down and it's not going back up. So it's a dilemma. But when we look at the difference between highly engaged employees and not, uh, highly engaged employees are 4.3 times more profitable per head, 2.9 times higher revenue per head. They are 40% less likely to turn over. They're 20% more productive and their impact on share price is over three times higher. It is a hard metric, uh, or it, it generates hard metrics that uh, you know bloodless capitalists should be comfortable <laughs> exploiting or exploring. But it just strikes me that because, no, I'm not going to say because of, the excuse that people will use is that there are too many people, they're too busy, it's not their job, they're not running a holiday camp. But at the end of the day, you are... It, the the people in your organization determine your success. And if they don't feel heard, then chances are you will not get that discretionary effort that highly engaged people give. You're preaching to the choir here. And okay. I will add to that, that work can't get done without communication. If all communication stopped in a company, the company would first become extremely ineffective and then it would end. So work really is all about communication and how we relate to each other. And I think one of the things that people fear is if they have to really turn their attention towards communication, they have to be nice. And there are some people who just don't want to ever be nice. But communication doesn't always equal niceness. Effective communication actually has been studied for decades. And there are very specific skills and strategies that we can use in both speaking and listening that don't mean we're nice. It means that we're effective and we're getting our work done and we're getting the information that we need to get to the right people. And I think one of the, the travesties is that a lot of people do teach communication and specifically listening skills, you know, as being nice skills, but they're not being nice skills. Think about what we're doing with listening. We are making meaning and what could be more valuable to a company than not only making meaning, 
but making aligned meaning, which means that we're all looking in the same direction at the same time, working towards the same goal at the same moment. How much would productivity increase there? And we're finding that teams that do listening training, um, there are a couple different studies out there. One of them increased their revenue over the two quarters after the team had been trained in listening because it increases clarity and it increases the comfort level of people to ask questions when they don't understand something. And that's huge. That is a huge takeaway. And we also know that companies, uh, divisions and companies that have what is perceived to be a greater listening environment or better listening environment, which is just measured through five very simple questions, those earn more money than divisions that don't have a positive listening environment. If companies can be more profitable, can be more effective, and we as individual producers can produce more, what advice would you give to individuals, salespeople, managers, in order to develop their own listening capabilities? I think listening can become our superpower. And if we recognize the power that is in listening, then we need to seek out where we can become a better listener. And the reality on this is that listening is, effective listening is based on research. So you have to find the people who understand the research and can translate the research. And two areas or or two types of people that I would suggest seeking out, the International Listening Association, which you had um, identified before, have what's called a certified listening professional designation. And it doesn't mean that we just sit around and we're good listeners ourselves. Um, As a certified listening professional, it means that I understand the research that backs listening and that helps us make meaning and understand things. And I understand some of the, what I call the verbal listening skills that go along with that. And you had also mentioned the echo listening profile, and I'm a certified practitioner in that. And to be a certified practitioner, you have to understand listening to a greater degree that is supported through the research as well. So if people want to improve listening, I think that if they seek out somebody like that, and I'm certainly up for that task, they can contact me. And if I'm not able to help them, I can direct them to other certified listening practitioners or other echo practitioners. What about material that people can read or watch or listen to that you'd recommend so that they can start at least better understanding listening? I know this is going to sound funny, but one of the greatest places that I found really is Google Scholar. And I have to say that the majority of work that's found on Google Scholar is very good because they really are research articles for the majority of them. So the International Journal of Listening, many of the articles from that journal that you couldn't necessarily access through a typical library would be available on Google Scholar. So you can go there. 
Um, there are some listening textbooks that have been published and some more recently that I think are absolutely terrific. So for example, there is this book that's called Listening Research Methodology and Methodology and Measures. It's a source book by Worthington and Bodie, and it has over maybe over a hundred instruments on how you can measure listening in different ways, depending on what you're looking for in the process there. And they have scholars who have actually critiqued each of those instruments and says, this is what's really good about this instrument. This is, wasn't, isn't, is what's not good about the instrument. Um, and this is how you can find it. So for bears of not very much brain, how academic are those articles? And is there something that might be more accessible uh, for your average salesperson? <laughs> something that might be more accessible for the average salesperson really is a listening textbook that was developed by Worthington and Fitchhauser. And what I particularly like about that one is that it really breaks listening down. It's meant for a college freshman. And so the average manager could read something like that. I think also becoming aligned with things like Oscar Trimboli. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but he does the Deep Listening podcast and he's really developed a great community. What I will say about Oscar is not everything he's done is based on research, but everything he does really seems to resonate with people. And if people are put into that position where they're willing to seek out even more information about listening, they'll begin to discern what the better information is and what the not so good information is because it just comes from one individual's perspective. And that was Oscar Triscoli, T-R-I-S-C-O-L-I? Trimboli, T-R-I-M-B-O-L-L-O. Trimbolo, right, okay. Yeah. Um, so there's another lesson in listening for me. Uh, <laughs> wonderful. Okay, so Laura, tell me something. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? What I'm wrestling in with right now is I, I see that for my life right now, I would like to retire in about 10 years, really. And there are so many people to help with listening. How can I package listening in a way that will appeal to people so I can really help them become better listeners? Okay. Well, I'll have you back as a guest if you'll come. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So how are you leveraging your networks in order to be able to get access to people who are willing to learn how to listen better? I am leveraging my networks currently in two ways. Number one, I'm volunteering to do a lot of webinars for associations and groups. And so that puts me in front of a lot of people and it helps me just spend an hour with individuals to have them go, huh there's more to this listening thing than I ever thought. So if I can get them just a little bit interested in listening, then I can give them more. They will seek out more. So that's one way that I am leveraging my networks. And the other really goes back to that good old-fashioned networking. And I have to say that I know a lot of people hate Zoom, but I am doing an awful lot of one-on-one Zoom meetings or small group Zoom meetings 
that are really effective in helping to understand what the average worker is struggling with or the average manager or the average salesperson is struggling with and thinking of different ways that I could help them. Because, I mean, two other areas that might be worth exploring are educators, because if we catch people early, then presumably if they develop listening as a habit, then hopefully later on in life, um, there'll be fewer points of conflict and fewer misunderstandings. And uh, the other would be um, HR. But I, I think HR, unfortunately, is so hard pressed. And certainly over in the UK, it's become more of an administrative function and a substitute for legal services, which is such a shame because I think you know, really good HR is worth its weight in gold. Yeah. And I would add to that too, that organizational development professionals I actually did a webinar yesterday for them and it was very interesting because I had one gentleman challenge me and say, well, we don't have time really to do any type of communication training, you know, and in essence... That's why you don't have time. Yes, exactly, (laughs) exactly. You know, so helping people understand what communication really is. I mean, when you think about having that same picture in your mind that I have in my mind, that is totally aligned communication. And when you have a group of us who have the same picture in our mind, then we are all looking in the same direction at the same time. And how much more productive could we be and how much more into the future can we get because we are all aligned and moving in the same direction? Important point. It really, you know, listening training really reduces rework. It reduces conflict. It reduces confusion. Uh, If we understand what we're supposed to be doing, we're going to do it the first time around. And then look, our time is available for something new as opposed to redoing it because I did it wrong the first time. Well, again, I see this in uh, middle management. Middle management, I think, has five critical functions. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, clear the roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above and manage inclusively. And the getting the best out of them often is to give people a damn good listening to through coaching and to hear what someone has to say. So uh, often uh, I'll start a coaching session with, you know, why am I here? Am I to tell you what to do? to hear you vent, or to ask you questions so you can work it out for yourself. But I think one of the things that seems to be sadly lacking is the amount of time that's spent in genuine coaching. And that acts as an incredible forum for individuals to express themselves so that they can get better, you can help put them back together again if they're having a tough time. And through the pandemic, I think it's a skill that Again, if, if managers had had it, many fewer people would have been suffering from the impact of the mental stress. And what we're seeing is a lot of people feeling very isolated, not feeling heard, with their jobs up in the air, who knows, uh, and all that uncertainty. And what we know in the UK is that about 30% of the adult population suffers from some form of mental stress or mental disorder and 
over 20% of absenteeism is down to their stress. Now, if we're not listening to people and they don't feel heard, they don't feel understood, then we're going to propagate those problems. And it just strikes me as um, a false economy that we're not investing in this. So what one bit of advice would you give to senior leaders within companies? Listen face-to-face, whether that be mediated through Zoom or actually face-to-face, to at least five people per week that do not directly report to you. Okay. Take time to actually interact with them, ask them what's preventing them from doing their job as well as they know it could be done. Where do they see if they were if they were in the CEO's shoes, what would they do differently and why? And just listen to understand, not to resp- not to respond. Interesting. What, one of the things that I see occur time and time again is people's discomfort with silence. And certainly in sales, Gong did a study. They uh, analyzed 10 million uh, telephone conversations between salespeople and prospects. And the average length of time that the salesperson could shut up before they filled the silence with the sound of their own voice was 0.7 of a second. It's improved because when Miller Hyman did it 15 years ago, it was 0.6 of a second. Uh, <laughs> so, or is it the other way? No, actually, it's got worse. 0.7 is worse, isn't it? The challenge, I think, is to learn, often a great starting point is to learn how to be comfortable with the silence and let it rest. And one of the most important skills that I think I, I teach my clients is to listen to the end of someone's sentence. And then pause and allow yourself three, four, five, six seconds to go over what they've said and leave space for them to continue talking, but also to formulate your question in that silence, not whilst they're talking. Because I I think that's one of the biggest reasons why people misinterpret and uh, they make the wrong meaning when they're, they, they're in a conversation because it's two people broadcasting rather than a conversation where both sides are trying to understand the other. So do you have any hints or tips in terms of learning to be comfortable with the silence? See, I was just doing the silence for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, I think that is a brilliant tip that you, that you bring up, Marcus, to have people be silent and to develop their question during that silence. And I think part of the perception has actually been highly influenced by our media. So think about the smartphone. If you're not constantly doing something, then nothing is getting done. Mm. And we've translated that to conversation as well. But in conversation, we do need that time to think. So I think that in trying to teach people to be silent, two tips that I would have to add to develop your question there is number one, hold your breath while they're talking as much as possible, because that's going to then prevent you from actually interrupting them <laughs> or speaking. And, might then, blue, but... yeah, yeah. and then after they're 
But when we feel those things in our body, those are cues for us to do something or to not do something. So when we hold our breath, that's our cue to not talk, not not interrupt. Uh, and then secondly, during the silence, if we intake at least three breaths, so breathe at least three times, breathe in through the nose, because when we breathe in through the nose, we get more oxygen to our brain than when we breathe in through our mouths. All right. So breathe in through your nose three times while you're formulating the question, then you're going to have a better question and then talk or ask them, is there more? Is there anything else? What else can you tell me about that? Because if they didn't tell you everything the first time around, even with that little silence, they may have come up with something else that's going to be the key for you. So you want to make sure that they've had the opportunity to get it all out there as well. That's a great tip. Thank you. So, Laura, we come to the top of the hour. Cheeky question, and this isn't about regret. But if you could go back and you had a golden ticket and you could whisper in the ear of the idiot Laura, age 23, what choice bit of advice would you whisper? I love that question. I would say don't worry about planning your future right now. Work hard in the moment. Keep your eyes open. And know that the universe will be continually presenting you opportunities to go where you're needed the most. It's interesting. One of the things I teach my clients is the deal of a lifetime occurs roughly once a month. It's always out there. And you have to stay open. I I think I'm a big fan of planning. But you also need to understand that the plan never survives contact with the enemy. and the minute the plan is written, it's already out of date. And you need to be situationally present and aware and adaptable. But more importantly, you have to be open to the opportunities that present themselves. And sometimes they're not that obvious. So, okay, excellent advice. Tell me, you've mentioned a couple of books. Is there anything that's really inspiring you at the moment? doesn't necessarily have to be about listening, could be about life, the universe, management, psychology. Actually, the book that has inspired me the most and just totally made me think of life in different ways is the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. A couple of really interesting books that I'm getting into at the moment. One is called Worth Doing Wrong by Arnie Mallon. And I I think uh, early in my career, I wish I'd learned that failure wasn't a personality defect. And another fascinating read is Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. I uh, watched a fabulous program on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And it's a a push to humanize technology because we haven't evolved quickly enough to cope with the uh, the way that social media and games and so forth are effectively like uh, crack for the brain. And um, so the power of manipulation 
And I, I think one of the most important lessons that I learned along the way is that not all manipulation is bad if the, the intent is correct and the intent is pure. It's about being authentic. It's about serving the other person. But if you're trying to convince, if you're trying to force someone to your will, then that has some serious moral repercussions. And a really interesting book that I, it's only available on audio, was by Peter Block, The Right Use of Power. And they're really fascinating reads. And my suspicion is that we need to broaden our reading and our exposure to different subjects. Because one of the things I've found is if you just read around one topic, you might become very specialized, but then what you lack is perspective. And I think one of the most important skills in listening is to be able to see things from another's point of view. And in fact, uh, to be able to see the opposing point of view at the same time as you hold your own view. Yes, I, I totally agree with you. And one of the challenges that I often give people is to identify a podcast or a news source that comes from a different political perspective than your own and listen to it regularly. And in the beginning, you will be listening to your body because your body will be rejecting all <laughs> ideas. And yes, recoiling and going, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But your challenge over time is to find where the common ground is because there always is common ground. It may be how we get there is going to be fundamentally different, but there always is common ground. And that, I think, is an absolute gem of a takeaway. What we should be looking for is not the difference, it's the common ground. Because mm -hmm. that's, and interestingly enough, I interviewed Jane Gunn, who's a very successful international mediator. And it was, it's about looking for the consensus. It's about looking for that commonality. And interestingly enough, Buddhist monks have an exercise where for 10 minutes they argue for and against the existence of God. So one of them argues for and then one of them argues against. And then they swap roles. And they do this on uh, an interchangeable basis over hours. And I, I think that's a very powerful exercise as well. Find someone whose view is the opposite of yours and then argue their case for, uh, on their behalf and they do yours on your, on your behalf. Very interesting. So, Laura, how can people get hold of you? People can get a hold of me first through LinkedIn. That's a very easy way. So Laura Janusik, J-A-N-U-S-I-K. I also currently have a website with the link of info at listeningtochange.com. That would be the, the, the email address for me, or the actual web address is just listeningtochange.com. That's going to be changing within the next three to four months. I hope to keep the same domain name and the same email, but the name of the company, Listening to Change, will remain the same. Excellent. Professor Laura Janusek, thank you so much. Thank you, Marcus. It has been a pleasure to spend this time with you. Likewise. And you're not as grumpy as they say. <laughs> Can you tell my children, please? <laughs> Excellent. 
This is Marcus Cowkey signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, then please get in touch with either me or Laura. And you can get hold of me on marcuscowkey at me.com or marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please get in touch, put us in touch via LinkedIn or via email, and I'll do my best to get them on as a guest or to um, have a chat with you. And please like, comment, and share. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe. Bye-bye. Happy selling. Bye-bye.